Reading is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to the end of the chapter, verse 25, and it's on page 1,218. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Really helpful. Thanks very much, Alistair. Good evening, everybody. When we read the ending of that, when we were thinking it through, Calvin and myself, we thought, well, what we'll do is we'll do the message now and we'll go straight into communion because it so helpfully leads us into it. And so we have message, then communion, and um, some more sung worship after that. I wonder how you are at being good when it's not good around you when the situation is not right? How are you at doing right when you're not thanked for doing right? Uh, In a world full of not right things, you being called to do the right thing and other people around you not necessarily welcoming that or even understanding it. This bit of the letter uh, for the first hearers is the very, very practical bit. And what we need to do, I think, is to unpack it from its context, at least to understand the context, and then to try to appropriate it where it is appropriate to our context. This is Roman times when a whole group of people were undervalued to varying degrees. Uh, Women and children, slaves, uh, non-Romans, and in other contexts, non-Jewish citizens, um, all to different extents, undervalued. In a world... uh, now where our society rightly rejects those things and seeks to value people equally, whether we're successful or not, we could go on debating. So we just need to recognise that this context is not our context. The first verse, for example, everyone, 
is one of a couple that talks about the emperor, for example. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and say very few of you came this evening, hoping against hope there would be some practical teaching about how we address the emperor for today. Or how we address our slaves, how we act towards our slaves. Or how we act as slaves. Which is not to say there isn't a modern day issue with slavery, just that our situation is different. I didn't come needing particular practical help on those things either for my life tomorrow in, in many ways. So in fact, I think there are two main dangers when we approach a passage like this, and in general, when we approach God's word. One is to look at it and act as though our situation is exactly the same as this, and so to ignore any context differences. And the second is to kind of dismiss it as so different culturally to our world that it has no direct application to us. Both things are errors in terms of applying the Bible to our lives. To just read it and say this directly applies to us in every way and I needn't worry about context is not a good way to approach the Bible. To read it and dismiss it as saying, well, it's just so completely different uh, that it never applies to us, none of it applies to us, is not the right way to approach God's word either. When I think of this passage, there's a gem for me as I've been reading it this week in particular. I hope it is for you too in this passage uh, and all that follows from it. And I would summarise it this way. God has an ideal for you in a not ideal situation. God has an ideal for you today and tomorrow in a not ideal world or situation. And that's needed and valued just as much today as it was for the people Paul, uh, Peter is writing, I'm following your footsteps and calling him Paul, Roger. Peter is writing these instructions for, because we're in a messy world today just as much. In fact, it's powerful. It means whatever else anybody does, whatever else anybody says to you, whatever else is going on around you in a messy and imperfect world, in a less than ideal world, there is still the possibility of you doing the right thing tomorrow. There is still God's ideal for what you should be doing with him this evening. And our model for that is Jesus, as it says from verses 21 onwards. To this you were called, because Christ Jesus suffered for you, leaving you as an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. When they hurled insults at him, when he suffered, in a less than ideal world, there is still God's ideal for you and me tomorrow in a business world, in a family world that's less than ideal, in a relationship world, in um, neighbourhoods that are less than ideal, and so on and so on. There's something so powerful in this, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Our faith is more than just concepts. Um, it's down to earth where it's messy and complicated. And in that situation, it says that God is our shepherd and the overseer of your souls. And it puts those words in capitals because it's like they're titles. And when it says overseer, that's the word that we get our, our word bishop from. So you can be bishop of a whole number of things and they're great titles, you know, bishop of Chichester, um, archbishop of Canterbury, 
Our God is the bishop of your souls. And he's there to look after and your soul. So maybe before we say anything else, maybe you can just picture who you might be praying for over communion, who's going through some less than ideal situations at the moment. Maybe that's you. Maybe you can picture people in the room or people at work or at home or in relationships facing really difficult things. For them and, and for you and for me, there's a right thing to do tomorrow, even if it's not received as such by those around them. Whoever you're thinking of, there is, the, there is a way the Lord would want us to go. There's things he'd want us to do and not do. Even if in the longer term, his plan is to get people out of that less than ideal situation. He, he, say you're doing some, some job that you really don't want to do, don't feel called to. In the longer term, he may call you to something else that suits you much better. Maybe you're with people who are not appreciating you. In the longer term, he may place you where you are. But for now, you're there and there is an ideal for you in that situation, just as there was to the people he is writing to. Maybe we can be picturing who we'd be praying for in those circumstances. For me, there's a really helpful summary verse, right somewhere in the middle of this passage. It's verse 17. Show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honour the emperor. And so that's four things, really, isn't it? Show proper respect to everyone, number one. Love the family of believers. Two, fear God, honour the emperor. Let's consider them one at a time. Show proper respect to everyone. You and I read that, and hopefully that's a bit of a no-brainer. It's like, okay, yeah, of course we would want to show proper respect to everyone. This is written at a time where this is not a no-brainer. This is brand new teaching. There are millions upon millions of people in the Roman world who are not shown respect. And it's not expected that you show them respect. The heart of the Christian message and Christ's message is Christ coming for everyone. So in the Roman world, there's no need to treat everyone with respect if they're just objects, as some slaves were considered to be. But in Christ's world, if they're made in the image of God, then that changes everything. And it arguably changes our value system from that point onwards. There's a professor in the States called John Somerville, and he tells a story that illustrates this brilliantly. He, li he likes to test it on different audiences at different times. He says, imagine that you're just walking along. There's nobody else but you there. And you see an old, little old lady coming down the street in, in the evening. There's nobody else there. She's carrying a big purse with her. And you have the option to take her purse away from her because you're clearly stronger than she is. And he says, well, what stops you from doing that? He says, there are, there are two options that could stop you from doing that. One is you realise, well, if you are caught, it will bring huge shame on your family, on everybody who knows you. There will be consequences. There'll be a prison sentence. It will be a mark against your name and it will bring shame to you for many, many years, if not the rest of your life. One reason you might not mug that old lady is because of that set of reasons. The second set of reasons, though, is because you look and consider that person, that old lady, and what it would do to her if you took her bag away and just left her and how she would feel about that. 
and how it would affect her for the rest of her life and how you don't do that to a person who is so valuable. He says, so, so, so we all agree we're not mugging the, the old lady, aren't we? And they all say yes. So he says, so which of those reasons is the dominant one for you to not mug the little old lady? And he, John Somerville says, pretty much everybody says option two. I'm not doing it because it's just not the right thing to do and because I think of how that would affect that person. And then he says, okay, but when you do that, now, if you're doing it thinking of that other person rather than yourself, that thinking comes from Christianity. It wasn't there before. It's there in our honouring everybody, our seeking to show proper respect for everybody. He says this, an ethical system based on honour is a self-regarding ethic, and while one based on charity is an other-regarding ethic. With honour comes a concentration on pride rather than humility, dominance rather than service, courage rather than peaceableness, glory rather than modesty, loyalty rather than respect, generosity to one's friends rather than equality. He goes on to say that an ethical system based on shame and honour was the dominant system for many civilizations. I said all, but many civilizations before Christianity arrives. And then he says, when you then take up this value of honouring the person, whether you're a believer or not, know that that value comes from our values that we get from Jesus. It's quite a strong and compelling argument, I think. Show proper respect for everybody. The other thing about that is when you look at it and it's about slaves and a whole bunch of other situations, it's not always about calling. It's not about the situation you might feel always ultimately called to. God has an ideal for you in a less than ideal world. It might be that it's about the situation you just happen to be in right now in those sets of circumstances. Love the family of believers is another level of value. It's a family language used for other people who share faith with us. It's, it's not worded as an individual, but us together and other groups of believers together. Then after that it says, fear God, which here surely means respect and awe and submission to God and then honour the emperor. Now, given who's writing this, Peter, not Paul, but given who's writing this, and when it was written, this emperor is far from ideal. If this is Nero, then this is an emperor who includes persecuting Christians. And yet it's still saying, honour the emperor. He has an ideal for you in a less than ideal situation. When it says at one point, um, before this in fact, live as free people but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for, ev- for evil, all Christian truths and freedoms, I think, can be distorted. Any Christian truth can. So the message of grace can be distorted as an excuse for sinning. The message of the love of God can be distorted as an excuse for breaking the commands of God. The message of the life to come can be used and distorted against 
honouring God in the life we have right now. The message of Christian freedom and liberty here can be twisted as a cover-up for doing evil. And we respond to grace and freedom by taking responsibility instead. And that responsibility is driven by love. And that points us to doing right even in the midst of a broken world. The bit I keep coming back to in my head is that this is written to slaves at least including slaves, some of whom are in the, in, uh, are the believers. So this is back to the, that first thought, that God has an ideal for you in a less than ideal situation. If, like the overwhelming majority of Christians, we think that Christianity has built into it a, a, an equality of every human soul, such that slavery in the end isn't tenable, and Christians should be at the forefront of breaking slavery and creating rules and and government legislation that makes it impossible for slavery to to continue, and and that there is evil in it. Nevertheless, it still continues on any given one day, and on that one day there is a right thing to do if you're in that wrong situation. So it's right that Christians are at the forefront of abolishing slavery then and now, but it should still have some instructions for those people for today as believers. Remember, if you were here last week, it doesn't matter if you, if you weren't, it depends what you were doing last week, it might, it might matter if you weren't, but if you were here um, last week, the, the, the chapter breaks are artificial in the sense that they come after this, this letter is, is written as, as the verse breaks. So the bit just before and the verse break in verse 12 live as such live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the, on the day he visits us it's still in the same area of doing the right thing in a wrong situation and reads very much like verse 15 in our bit for it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. One of the things that I've been playing with to help me try and understand this passage and some others is that I think sometimes in the Bible's teaching, maybe you're reading this and thinking, oh, there's instructions about you know, slaves and Caesar and the emperor and how we treat those people and clearly they're some of it is wrong and evil and how do, how do we rec- reconcile that with our faith and some of it we now don't accept and how, does that, how do we therefore interpret this letter? I have in my mind that sometimes we just need to bear in mind that when we're reading something, several things can be true at once. Several truths are going on at the same time and sometimes the instruction is about one of those truths. And an illustration for me is about a car. Now, Imagine that this car is not working. It has a, has a flat battery. I don't know if you've ever had a car with a flat battery. I've had loads of old cars. We've had loads of old cars, so we've done loads of push starts and um, uh, using jacks to start cars. We've got really good jump leads if anybody ever needs them because we've had those sorts of old cars. But we've done loads of jump starts. If you're in the car and it's, it's not operating as it should and the battery is dead... The, the instructions for you in those circumstances, there are some instructions for you, but, but they're not the same as if the car is operating, as it should. And, and some of the Bible's instructions are, are for a broken world, where things are not quite as they should be. 
And so we need to recognise that that's the situation. They're in a particular situation in that moment, but it's not exactly how it should be. The first car I ever had, uh, I took it for MOT, and I didn't know whether it would pass or fail. It more than failed. I don't know what, I don't know what more than failed is, but the garage told me that if I drove it home, they would report me to the police. <laughs> and I had to jumpstart that, that car and others over many occasions. And, and so I know that it's easier to push start or jumpstart a car if it's on a slope, if, 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 it's, if you're going on a downhill direction. Now, sometimes we need to read God's word and see that there is, a, there is clearly a direction of travel. It's clearly heading in one particular way. So when we read instructions, for example, about slavery, we also need to read that it says, show proper respect to everyone. Show proper respect to everyone. When you unpack that and look at what respect means and how you live that out, there's a direction of travel there such that in the end, when you really live that out, as Christ lived it out, it's going to be untenable to maintain slavery. Do you see? And then I think, I think there's a third truth as well when you look at that vehicle, that actually, if you're going to jumpstart it, there's somebody pushing it. There's somebody creating some impetus in a particular direction. And for me, that person is Jesus and all of God's truths that head in a particular direction when you look at how he treats people, when you look at Jesus on earth in a less than ideal world and how he treats people that send send the vehicle in a particular direction. And when he does so, obviously, to continue the illustration, at some point it's going to kick into life. And that car and the driver, then a whole different set of rules applies. If you've ever been in a situation where you're driving um, and you're waiting to be kick-started, there are certain things you do that you don't normally do when you're driving, but they apply to those circumstances. When the engine kicks in, then there's a whole other set of things you can do in, 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 in acceleration and gears, and you, know, you leave the, the, that limited truth and you head on to another truth. Now, This illustration for me applies not just to slavery, but to the bit that follows after this about wives and husbands and the way other passages talk about women and the way that women uh, should be in certain situations. I think the danger is this, you see. I think the danger is we look at one bit of an instruction to do with how women should should behave in a given circumstance, for example, and we ignore the fact that it's, it's an instruction looking at something that is already not how it should be. The, the, the battery is dead. But nevertheless, there are some things that are right to do in those circumstances. But if you look at the wider picture, there is a direction of travel. And if you look at the wider picture again, there is somebody giving it a push start to that direction of travel. When Sue and I were in India, uh, in Kolkata, we met the person who does my job in West Bengal, president of Baptist Union of West Bengal. And we talked to him about women in ministry, not trying to criticise at all, just trying to gently find out where they're at. And they are theologically more open than their practice. In other words, they're theologically open to the idea of women in ministry, but they have no examples of it at all anywhere in the Baptist church in, in West Bengal. So, so they said... 
would I, would I write something about why I take a position, an egalitarian position that includes women in all aspects of, of church ministry? I'm still trying to work out what that looks like because they don't want an academic treatise but, but they have some pretty old ropey cars in India as well. So I think they would understand that illustration. Um, but I think I would want to come at it from, not just that, from, from even when you take that snapshot picture and look at just some words, which for me are, are back a bit when you're looking at just one set of circumstances, it, some of the words that we think say one particular thing are overemphasized and misinterpreted. And all of them miss the context. So all of them miss the context of a direction of travel and the bigger narrative of what Jesus does and the way he includes women and the way women are included among elders and leaders in a variety of circumstances. I'd also want to encourage them about the message of, of whole life discipleship and about the fact that one job isn't more spiritual than another and so if we can include women in a whole range of leadership roles in other contexts then why not in church contexts so I'd want to say to my Indian and Sri Lankan brothers and sisters in Sri Lanka you had the first elected woman leader in the world and in India you had the second I think so if you can view them in those roles and we don't view one role as more spiritual than another if a Christian happens to be doing them, which they weren't in those circumstances, but that's not necessarily the point, then, then why not in this role? And then I'm, I would want to approach it from my question about where do we grow from here? I think we grow from here by using all the gifts that God's given us, and I think an equal share of those leadership gifts are given to women. And then I could talk about my personal experience of gifted women leading and teaching and helping. But for me in this passage, there are some instructions for today. And you're today like some of the children, uh, non-Romans, in other contexts, non-Jewish people, some of the women in those passages may be less than ideal. In that situation, God has an ideal for you in a not ideal situation. That's been my main thought, walk, walking through it. We'll pray about that as we go into communion. Chris will help us set up communion. Go for it, go for it, Chris. But as he does, let me reflect back with you on those last words that lead us so helpfully to what we're about to share in. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, for this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit in him was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. 
by his wounds we have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer or bishop of your souls.